Good morning, everybody. If you would, turn over to John chapter 7. John chapter 7, where we're going to take our lesson this morning. <clears throat> if you are joining us for the first time this morning, I want to just uh, welcome you again. We're honored that you have decided to worship with us this morning, and we hope you are encouraged by uh, your time with us. We've been going through a series in the Gospel of John, and we have gone through the entirety of chapter 7, except for two little verses right in the middle, and we're going to spend all of our time this morning talking about those two verses. Uh, this is one of those lessons you might want to take some notes, because... Um, we're not talking about just two verses. We're talking about a lot of places in Scripture and how they tie together. And so I'm going to try to move through the material quickly, um, but I pray and I hope that you will be encouraged by this. Some of you have told me repeatedly how much you like digging deeper into the Scriptures, and so this is one of those lessons we're going to try to dig as deep as we can. I have really enjoyed our time in John so far. It has reminded me of why I love not just the Gospel of John, but all four of the Gospels and really all of Scripture so much. It is a story about our Savior. It's a story written by and about the people who got to spend time with him, people who sat at his side, sat at his feet and learned from him, shared meals with him, listened to him teach, were in awe of the things that he said and he did, people whose lives were turned upside down by the realization that he was the Messiah that they'd been hoping for. But John is more than just a good story. Lots of people throughout history have written amazing stories. People are capable of writing brilliant stories. This is more than just a story. This is something divine. This is a story written from a perspective that only God could have because it's a story that begins, where does John begin his gospel? The very beginning, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This story's got God's fingerprints all over it. And one of the things that jumps out at me about the Gospel of John and, and all of Scripture is the perspective that it gives us on the nature of God and how it ties together themes that exist in other places in Scripture. And so if you have a tendency to read the Bible as all of these little disconjoined individual stories that don't necessarily have anything to do with one another, I want to encourage you to grow in your understanding of what Scripture is and read it as a story told from beginning to end. Yeah, there's a lot of characters and a lot of little stories that take place along the way, but this is one great big story. As Michael pointed out, it's a story of God's redeeming love from beginning to end. A God who loves us and wants to be with us and has done everything to make sure that that is a possibility. And so one of the places that we see that come to light, this connected story from beginning to end, is actually in John chapter 7. But as we look at this passage this morning, we're actually going to begin in Leviticus chapter 23. Because what better place to tell the story of John than Leviticus chapter 23, right? So in Leviticus, in this section of Scripture, God is outlining for the Israelites all of the yearly festivals that he wants them to remember. And these festivals, these feasts, would become kind of the ebb and flow, the rhythm of their life throughout the year. And the last feast or festival that they were to celebrate in each of their calendar years was the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. And so we're going to talk about that. In Leviticus chapter 23, and we shared this passage a couple weeks ago, and I want to remind you of what it says. God gives instruction regarding their keeping of the Feast of Tabernacles. 
And so picking up in Leviticus 23 and verse 33, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, On the first day of the seventh month you are to have a day of Sabbath rest, a sacred assembly commemorated with trumpet blasts. Do no regular work, but present a food offering to the Lord. And then he goes on, and you skip over to, oh, I'm sorry, I started in the wrong place. Verse 33, the Lord said to Moses, say to the Israelites, on the 15th day of the month, the Lord's festival of tabernacles begins, and it lasts for seven days. The first day is a sacred assembly, do no work. For seven days, present food offering to the Lord, and on the eighth day, hold a sacred assembly and present a food offering to the Lord. It is the closing special assembly, do no regular work. And then we'll skip down because he gets into some other things. But look at verse 39, he says, so beginning with the 15th day of the seventh month, after you have gathered the crops of the land, celebrate the festival to the Lord for seven days. The first day is a day of Sabbath rest, and the eighth day also is a day of Sabbath rest. On the first day, you are to take branches from luxuriant trees, from from palms, willows, and other leafy trees, and rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. Celebrate this as a festival to the Lord for seven days each year. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. Celebrate it in the seventh month. Live in temporary shelters for seven days. All native-born Israelites are to live in such shelters. So your descendants will know that I had the Israelites live in temporary shelters when I brought them out of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So the last feast of the year, the Feast of Tabernacles, was designed to commemorate two things. Number one, the way that God sustained Israel through the wilderness wanderings. You didn't have temporary homes. You lived in shelters. For 40 years as I brought you through the wilderness, you didn't have a permanent place to call home, and yet did God provide for them. Yes, he did. And so this is to commemorate the provision of God through that time. But the second thing it commemorates is the fact that God didn't just provide for Israel in the past. He's providing for them now. And as they brought in the crops, the produce from that year, this was a chance to celebrate the fact that God had given them crops yet again. And he'll continue to do that in the following year. Let's skip over to Deuteronomy chapter 16. In Deuteronomy chapter 16, we find more instruction about the Feast of Tabernacles. And this time, picking up in verse 13, we read this. Celebrate the festival of tabernacles for seven days after you have gathered the produce of your threshing floor and your wine press. Again, here the focus is on the bringing in of the crops from that year. Be joyful at your festival, you, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, and the Levites, the foreigners, the fatherless, the widows who live in your towns. For seven days, celebrate the festival to the Lord your God at the place the Lord will choose. For the Lord your God will bless you in all your harvest and in all the work of your hands, and your joy will be complete. This is supposed to be a celebration of the fact that God was sustaining them yet again for another year. If you skip over to the book of Nehemiah, In Nehemiah chapter 8, starting in verse 13, so the books of Ezra and Nehemiah are written during a very interesting time in Israel's history. In the 6th century before Jesus, the Babylonians conquered Jerusalem, they destroyed the temple, and they carried off the people into captivity. After the Babylonians had fallen from power, the Persians rose up, and two of the Persian kings, first Cyrus and then Artaxerxes after him, had released some of those people back in waves to go back into Jerusalem and begin to rebuild what Babylon had destroyed. And so this chronicles the rebuilding time in Israel's history. And in the book of Nehemiah, we find an interesting passage about the Feast of Tabernacles. So Nehemiah chapter 8, starting in verse 13, we read this. 
On the second day of the month, the head of all the families, along with the priests and the Levites, gathered around Ezra, the teacher, to give attention to the words of the law. They found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded through Moses, that the Israelites were to live in temporary shelters during the festival of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim this word and spread it throughout their towns in Jerusalem. Go out into the hill country and bring back branches from olive and wild olive trees and from myrtles, palms, and shade trees to make temporary shelters as it is written. So as they're restoring not just the physical part of Israel, but religious life in Israel, in Jerusalem, the priest stands up, he's reading from the law, and they're like, hey, here's this festival we have not been keeping. We're supposed to grab all these branches and build temporary shelters. We have to do this. And so it says in verse 16, the people went out and they brought back branches and built themselves temporary shelters on their own roofs and in their courtyards and in the courts of the house of God and in the square by the water gate and the one by the gate of Ephraim. So all over the city of Jerusalem are these temporary structures being built. The whole company that had returned from exile built temporary shelters and lived in them. And pay attention to this verse. From the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day, the Israelites had not celebrated it like this. And their joy was very great. From the time of Joshua, during the conquest of Canaan, right after Moses, to the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, all of those generations of Israelites had forgotten to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. So here's their opportunity to start afresh. They're rebuilding the city. They're rebuilding the temple. They're going to rebuild religious life. They want to commemorate these festivals. The very next chapter, something very interesting happens. After they read this, there's an opportunity given to them. The priest stands up and reads the law, and they begin to repent publicly. Not just acknowledging their own shortcomings, but looking back on all of Israel's history, they begin to talk to God about all of the ways that their forefathers had forsaken God. This is just one example. All the things they had failed to do, all the ways that they had forgotten the goodness of God, and they begin to repent of it. And in verse 16 of, of Nehemiah chapter 9, we read this. But they, our ancestors, these people say, became arrogant and stiff-necked, and they did not obey your commands. They refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked and in the rebellion appointed a leader to return to slavery. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Therefore you did not desert them. Even when they cast for themselves an image of a calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt, or when they committed awful blasphemies. What's this coming from? Exodus 32 through 34, right? Which we spent so much time in. Because of your great compassion, you did not abandon them in the wilderness. By day, the pillar of cloud did not fail to guide them on their path, nor the pillar of fire by night to shine on the way they were to take. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. You did not withhold your manna from their mouths, and you gave them water for their thirst. Even though they rebelled against you from the very beginning, they're saying. And they built this golden calf and they wanted to go back to Egypt. You didn't forsake your people. You did not forsake them because of your steadfast love and mercy. But you provided for them anyway. And how did he provide for them? Even when they complained, God, you brought us out here to the wilderness. There's no food. You brought us here just to kill us through starvation. You remember that? What did he give them? Manna. When they were worried about water and they said, you brought us out to a desert so we could thirst to death. You brought us out here just to kill us. God didn't forsake them. He gave them what? Water. And he gave them of his spirit. And they're remembering all of that. He says, For forty years you sustained them in the wilderness. 
They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, nor did their feet become swollen. So as they have an opportunity to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles for the first time in generation, it brings them to repentance, acknowledging the fact that for too long their people had forgotten that God alone has sustained them, and he will continue to sustain them in the future. So we see these two themes come to the forefront in the Feast of Tabernacles. Number one, God's provision. How is it played out here? Water. In a desert for 40 years, they never ran out of water. Why? Because God gave them water. This is God's provision. He took care of them. And number two, God's presence. How? He gave them of his spirit. Okay, I want you to think about these two things. God's provision through the emblem of water and God's presence through the outpouring of his spirit. Okay, water and spirit. You got it? Okay. During the time of Jesus, the Feast of Tabernacles had become even more elaborate than is spelled out in the law. And you've got some amazing uh, descriptions of what happened during the time of Jesus in Jerusalem during that festival of tabernacles. So each day of that feast in the morning, a priest would go down to the Pool of Siloam. And the Pool of Siloam was a place where the springs, the natural springs that fed Jerusalem during the time of Hezekiah, he built a tunnel out of solid rock to protect their water source from any of his enemies. That water was funneled into this pool. It represented the singular source of water and life for the people of Jerusalem. He would go down to the Pool of Siloam with a golden pitcher in hand, and he would fill up the pitcher with water. Then he would walk through the water gate back to the temple, and in the temple were two giant basins, and they looked like silver. One of them was for wine, one of them was for water. And those basins would empty down to the base of the altar, and the priest with his giant procession of people behind him would get to the base of the altar, and he would pour the water in the basin. But before he did that, the people would all shout out, raise up your hand. And he would raise his hand to show them the pitcher of water so that the crowds could see what he was about to do. And the reason he did that is because at one time in their history, a Sadducee got up. And in order to prove his disdain for how elaborate this festival had become, he poured the water out on his feet instead of in the basin. You know what they did to him? They pelted him with fruit and nearly killed him. And so a tradition rose up. Show us what you're about to do. And in front of everybody, with great pomp and circumstance, he would pour that water into a bowl and it would empty at the base of the altar. And this was as elaborate a celebration as you can imagine. There was singing. There was music. There were these giant candelabras made of gold that reached way up. They had to have kids on ladders climb up whose job was just to get to the top of them to light them. And it illuminated the entire temple. There were people doing acrobatics and juggling. This is a giant celebration. So much so that the Mishnah, which is a recording of the oral traditions of the rabbis during the second temple period, written second, third century after Jesus. In reflecting on everything that took place in Jerusalem during this festival, they say this about that water-pouring festival specifically. One who did not see the celebration of the place of the drawing of the water never saw a celebration in his days. In other words, if you didn't witness that, you have no idea what a real celebration looks like. They were very proud of this. It was an elaborate procession. It was hugely important to the people, and there was an enormous amount of celebration that took place, all about the taking of the water and the pouring of the water out, which represented what? God's sustenance and his presence. We can pour this water out 
because you know, we know you will give us more. We're not like our ancestors, freaking out about where water is coming from. We know you've given it to us in abundance. But listen to me. The reason I tell you all of that, and I know it was a little bit boring, the reason I tell you all of that is because it's during that celebration that Jesus stands up on the last and greatest day with all of that as a backdrop. And he cries out, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Can you see the scene in your mind? Can you understand where Jesus is drawing this imagery from? By this he meant the Spirit, John tells us, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time the Spirit had not yet been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. Water and Spirit. Jesus is crying out to a crowd of people who have been watching this all week long. And he says to them, and I imagine him doing it as it's taking place. And you can imagine the scene it would have caused. If you are thirsty, come to me. And I will give you rivers of living water that will come from within your very belly, the language is there. Literally pour from without you. And he was talking about the Spirit. Let's think about all this imagery for just a minute. It's apparent that Jesus is quoting Scripture, but exactly what Scripture is he quoting? And first of all, let me just say, sometimes you read this and you, you don't think about the background. We don't place ourselves in the time of Jesus and it's easy to just say, well, Jesus was feeling just a little cantankerous that day and he got excited and he stand up and he started yelling something about water. Well, this isn't out of place. There's a reason for everything he's doing. Much like in John chapter 4, the conversation he has with the Samaritan woman about water, he has because where are they when he has that conversation? At a well. That's why he's talking about water. Why is he talking about water in John chapter 7? Because in this Feast of Tabernacles, every day the priest was pouring water at the base of the altar. It provided perfect imagery for what he wanted to get them to understand. As a group of people passionate about serving their God are celebrating the idea that God is going to sustain them and that God is going to pour his spirit out on them, he makes this statement and he applies it to himself. But what passage exactly is he referencing? You'll find a lot of suggestions because there's no one place in Scripture that's an exact match to what Jesus says. Here's a suggestion. Zechariah chapter 14 and verse 8. Later on in this very chapter is a conversation about the need for God's people to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. But we find this in verse 8. On that day living water will flow out of Jerusalem. Half of it east to the Dead Sea and half of it west to the Mediterranean Sea in summer and within. Perhaps he's referencing that. Perhaps he's referencing Ezekiel chapter 47, and I think he is. If you turn over to Ezekiel chapter 47, let me read this passage quickly for you. Ezekiel 47, in the end of Ezekiel, there is this long vision that Ezekiel shares about the rebuilding of God's temple. Ezekiel is prophesying during the Babylonian exile. So the temple has been destroyed, they have not yet gone back to Jerusalem, and they are only looking forward to the fact that God might redeem them in the future and they would one day get to rebuild that temple. And as he details this new temple that God is envisioning, he's not talking just about the physical rebuilding of a physical structure, but what God has in mind for the future. 
the completion of all of his promises and plans. And in chapter 47, we find this really beautiful and amazing imagery. Let me read it for you. Ezekiel 47, verse 1. The man brought me back to the entrance of the temple, and I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. The water was coming down from under the south side of the temple, south of the altar. He then brought me out through the north gate and led me around to the outside of the water gate facing east, and the water was trickling from the south side. Okay, so if you get overwhelmed with all the details, just picture this. A new temple and water is trickling out from under the altar and outside the temple. Just a trickle of water, okay? Verse 3, as the man went eastward with a measuring line in his hand, he measured off a thousand cubits and then led me through that water, and then led me through water that was ankle deep. He measured off another thousand cubits and led me through water that was now knee deep. Do you see what's happening? The trickle is turning into a stream and it's turning into a river and the water is getting deeper and deeper. There's more and more water coming from outside the temple. Then he led me uh, through water that was up to the waist. He measured off another thousand, but now it was a river that I could not cross because the water had risen and was deep enough to swim in, a river that no one could cross. And he asked me, son of man, do you see this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. So now that trickles become a full-on river. When I arrived there, I saw a great number of trees on each side of the river. What is the river doing? It's bringing forth life. It's a river of life. He said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah where it enters into the Dead Sea. When it empties into the sea, the salty water becomes fresh. Why was it called the Dead Sea? Because it was dead. There was no life in it. It could not sustain life. This river that's coming out of the temple is full of a kind of water that is so full of life that it even turns the Dead Sea into fresh water. And guess what happens next? Verse 9, swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows. There will be large numbers of fish because this water flows there and makes the salt water fresh. So where the river flows, everything will live. Fishermen will stand along the shore from Engedi to Engengelam, and there will be places for spreading nets, and the fish will be of many kinds like the fish of the Mediterranean Sea. But the swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They will be left for salt. Fruit trees and all kinds will grow on both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither, nor will the fruit fall. Every month they will, bear fruit. they will bear fruit because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. Their fruit will serve for food and their leaves for healing. Okay, why am I even sharing this passage with you? Well, this is beautiful imagery for one, but what does it have to do with anything? Okay, from the temple will trickle out this water that turns into a river that no one can cross, that everywhere it goes, it brings forth life. On either bank of the river, trees are growing. What's growing in the trees? Fruit. How often do the trees bloom? Every month of the year. And what does the fruit bring about? Life and healing. It's a beautiful image. What does it have to do with what we're talking about now? In John chapter 2, verses 18 through 21, Jesus famously, it's the Passover, he gets mad at the money changers in the temple and he does what? Makes a whip, drives them all out, overturns the tables, creates quite a scene. And the Jews respond to him, what sign do you show us to prove your authority to do all this? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. And they have a fit. Destroy this temple? They replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. That's by now the third version of the temple. Herod's temple, the biggest and greatest version. And you are getting to, you're going to raise it again in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was not Herod's temple, it was what? His body. 
We talked about this when we were in John chapter 2. When you think of the temple of God, what do you think of? The temple is a place where God dwelt among his people. What is the story of Scripture from beginning to end? It's a God who loves his creation so much that his greatest desire is to dwell with them. He dwelt with us in the garden until we rebelled and sin separated us. But then he made a covenant with his people and he dwelt with them in the wilderness, first in the tabernacle and then permanently in the temple when they brought it to Jerusalem. And then the temple was destroyed and they rebuilt it. And then the temple was damaged and they rebuilt it. And then the temple was destroyed again finally in AD 70 by the Romans and it's not rebuilt. But Jesus knows all this. He knows what's going to happen. And he's talking about the fact that the ultimate example of God dwelling among his people, this idea of a temple, does not exist in bricks and blocks and stone. It exists in his body and in his flesh. Jesus is the temple. How does John start his gospel? In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. Skip down to verse 14, and the Word became flesh and did what? Dwelt among us, except literally it's tabernacled among us. He took on a tent and he lived among us. What was his tent? Human flesh. When you talk about the idea of temple, God's presence among humanity, the perfect example of that is Jesus, God among us. You see where I'm going with this? In Matthew chapter 12 and verse 6, even more to the point, Jesus is having one of his many arguments with the Jewish authorities over healing on the Sabbath. And he makes this pointed statement, I tell you something greater than the temple is here. What could be greater than the temple? It represented God's presence among his people. Jesus was greater than the temple. God in human form. Jesus as a temple. In Revelation 21, we're going to look at the end of Revelation a few times. Revelation 21 and verse 22. The new Jerusalem comes down from heaven to earth and there's all this amazing language used to describe that city. Listen to what he says. I did not see a temple in the city. Well, that's heartbreaking. There's no temple. No, there's no need for a temple. Because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. God is there with his people. He's not in a building anymore. He's walking with us in the cool of the day like he did with Adam and Eve in the beginning. God's presence among his people. This is the story of Scripture. And then you get to Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 and 2. Here's this description of the new Jerusalem. And I want you to think about what we just read in Ezekiel chapter 47. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as a crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. And on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Where do you think John got that imagery from? From Ezekiel chapter 47. So all of this taking place in the statement Jesus makes, tying into places that talk about rivers of water coming out of the temple, associating himself with the temple, all of this coming to fruition in the end of the whole story of Scripture, where we get to be in God's presence again. But all of this, Jesus is saying, is about him. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 16. Okay, here's the question. If Jesus is taken up into heaven and the temple on earth is destroyed, then where is God's presence among his people now? What kind of temple do we have among us now? Well, going back to this theme of spirit in John chapter 7, listen, 1 Corinthians 3, 16, Paul says, Don't you know 
that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst. God has not left us as orphans. He's made his home in us. We are now God's temple, both individually and collectively. Later on in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You're not your own. You're bought with a price. Therefore, honor God in your bodies. Don't you know this? That you are temples of God because his spirit lives within you. Ephesians chapter 2, in him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. That building, by the way, is you and I, God's family, the church. And in him you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So if one of the themes of the Feast of Tabernacles is God's presence... And for the Israelites, they most closely associated God's presence with the temple. That's where they're celebrating this whole thing. That's where the water is being poured out. And Jesus is telling us, I am the temple. And now we know that we are the temple because of the spirit that dwells within us. Do you see how this statement he makes? If you're thirsty, come to me. And from within your bellies will pour out rivers of living water. And he's talking about the spirit. Do you see how all that ties together? Do you see it? It's beautiful, isn't it? Isaiah chapter 12 and verse 3, a couple more passages. What else can we look to? What else could Jesus possibly be referencing when he seems to quote from Scripture? How about this, Isaiah chapter 12 and verse 3? With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. It's a passage even the priests referenced as they went through this celebration. What about this one, Isaiah chapter 44 and verse 3? For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground and... This isn't just about God giving physical water, is it? If it's about God's providence, if it's about God's presence, if it's about God's sustenance, if it's about the way that God provides for us, all of that comes to fruition most fully in the outpouring of His Spirit. And this is what Isaiah says, I will pour out my Spirit on your offspring and my blessings on your descendants. Yeah, I'm going to give you water, but I'm going to sustain you with something even more powerful than water, my presence. My spirit. Then Isaiah chapter 55 and verse 1. Actually, Ron read it for us, the Lord's Supper, this morning. It's a beautiful passage. And the theme is basically, why do you work so hard to get money and then waste your money on stuff you can find in the market when that stuff never actually sustains you? Anybody here ever wasted money on anything in their life? Anybody? We chase after stuff that we want. Because we think it brings us something meaningful, but only God can sustain us. And so he tells them, come, all you who are thirsty. Does that sound familiar? Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. You don't have to worry about how much it costs because it's free. Money can't buy everything. And it certainly can't buy what only God can provide. Come buy wine and milk. Listen to this now without money, and without cost. I can give you what you need, and it's free. There's no cost associated with it. Now hear me out. Jesus references back to that passage. He applies it to himself. Let's go to Revelation again. Revelation 21 this time. Turn over there. Let me read these six verses to you. Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. 
I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place, what are we talking about? Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. The final vision of all of scripture is a finality to God dwelling with his people forever. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no death or mourning or crying or pain. For the older things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Listen to this verse. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. What does that sound like? Sounds like exactly the invitation Jesus gave in John chapter 7 doesn't it? Revelation chapter 22, the same thing. Isaiah predicts a time where God will pour out his spirit on people. He will give them the things they need that they can't buy from themselves. And he says, I will give it without cost. Revelation 22 and verse 17, the spirit and the bride say, come. What was Jesus' invitation? Come, drink. You're thirsty, come, drink. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty, come. And let the one who wishes take the free gift of water of life. Or as the NASB has, let the one who is thirsty take the water of life without cost. This isn't just a story John wrote about some cool stuff this one guy did one time. This is the hand of God at work. Throughout human history, from beginning to end, a story being told, you pull on a thread in one place in Scripture, and it unravels the whole Bible because it's all connected. These promises God made come to fruition in Jesus, and we see how they come to fruition for us at the end of all times. What does God want to be among His people? To provide us with the sustenance that we need, that we can't find on our own. You think about God's presence through the giving of His Spirit, and you think about God's provision through an outpouring of water in a dry and thirsty land. And with all that as a backdrop, Jesus stands up and he says, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. And when he said that, he was talking about the Spirit. God will give us his presence. God will give us his provision. God will never leave us and forsake us, and he will never fail to provide for us. This is what Israel came to Jerusalem for. This is one of three celebrations every year when all of the Jewish men were required to come back to Jerusalem regardless of where they were, to celebrate those two things, God's presence and God's provision. And with that as a backdrop, Jesus stands up and he makes this invitation. With all of that beautiful theme of Scripture as a backdrop, he makes this invitation. And it's an invitation he's still making today. And you want to know the best part about this invitation? The most beautiful part about this invitation is who he's making the invitation to. He stands up with that entire audience, the priests and everybody in awe of this celebration, the very people who were arguing over who he was, who were accusing him of having a demon, who refused to believe in him because he was from the wrong place and was educated in the wrong places. 
the same Jewish authorities who were plotting his death, the invitation is made to them. What a Savior we serve. That at the right time, Christ would die for us. While we were his enemies, he would die for us. You understand the beauty of that invitation? What a Savior we serve. So here's the invitation I have for you this morning. If you are thirsty, come. Come to the waters. I love this idea. Rivers of living water will come from within us. Go back to that conversation Jesus has with the Samaritan woman at the well. She wants the water he's going to offer her because she doesn't want to have to keep going back and forth to the well, right? This idea that God's presence is located in one geographical place and we have to keep going back to it to find him. When God gives us of his spirit, where do we find God now? Dwelling within us. This river is now flowing from within us. We are the source of that water. We don't have to search for God anymore. He's here with us forever and for always. That's the God we serve. And his invitation is always open. Are you thirsty this morning? Are you longing for God's presence and God's provision in your life? You will only find it in Jesus Christ. Won't you take a hold of it this morning? How can we serve you? I know I asked a lot from you today. Thank you for being patient with me. I hope you were encouraged by this. The Bible is a beautiful book. It's a stunning book. The story of our Savior is so amazing. If we can serve you in any way, won't you come forward and let us know how as we stand and we sing this last song. I cry out for your hand of mercy to heal me. I am weak and I need your love to free me. Oh Lord, my rock, my strength in weakness, come Oh